This is the Investor Mindset Podcast, and I'm Stephen Pesavento. And for as long as I can remember, I've been obsessed with understanding how we can think better, how we can be better, and how we can do better. And each episode, we explore lessons on motivation and mindset from the most successful real estate investors and entrepreneurs in the nation. Investor Mindset listeners, I am so excited to announce that we're going to be putting on an incredible event with some of the best speakers and trainers in our industry where we can learn the tips and tricks behind the success so that we can apply it ourselves. Make sure you head to theinvestormindset.com and join the Insider Club for more information on that and to hear about it first. It hasn't been announced anywhere else. You're not going to find out about it without joining the Insider Club first. Promise you, won't be disappointed you did. Let's jump into this episode. All right, guys, welcome back to the Investor Mindset Podcast. I am very, very excited today. I have Roger Blankenship on the show. Hey, Stephen. How you doing, Roger? <laughs> I'm good. I'm, I'm really good. I yeah. am excited because Roger is the Flipping America guy. He's host of a nationally syndicated real estate show, Flipping America, an author, an educator, motivational, inspirational speaker, and business leader. And he is a member of several professional real estate organizations and you know Forbes Magazine's Real Estate Council. And since 2002, Roger and his team have purchased and sold more than 1,100 properties across the United States. And I'm really excited to dig in deep because he, uh, you know, he's a fellow radio and podcaster, but he is uh, has a lot of experience and uh, a mindset that I could only imagine is one that we're going to all take a lot away from. So you ready to get into it, Roger? I am. Let's do it. Awesome. Well, you know, a thousand plus properties is quite a bit. So from a lot of people's perspective, I imagine you've hit success, but why don't we start by taking a look back? So what events or influences from your childhood shaped who you are today? Okay. I knew you were going to ask that question. And and so I've really given this some thought. And the truth is, I got to go back and tell you a little bit about my dad. All right. Mm -hmm. He's not a perfect human being, but he is my hero. And uh, when he was 16 years old, he lost the his right arm below his elbow in a farming mm. accident. Wow. And uh, this was long before the age of the ADA and all of those sorts of things. And he had a terrible time trying to find work. Um, he was in love with my mother and um, they wanted to get married, but he didn't have a job, couldn't get a job. And so he took everything he could. Long story short, they followed the wheat harvest up and down middle America for years, living in an Airstream trailer. He finally settled in Louisville, Kentucky and started his own business. He turns out he's very good on a tractor and can dig a basement um, really quickly. And he invented a little piece that goes on the side of the bucket, welded it on, that allowed him to get a straighter edge on the side of the bucket. I don't even understand how all of that works. But instead of one basement a day, he could dig two basements a day. And uh, wow. my, my dad started his own business with just a high school education, no real financial sophistication, um, no desire to be up front in front of people, but based on sheer grit and determination and a work ethic like no one I've ever seen. He built the fifth largest construction company in the state of Kentucky by the time I wow. was uh, graduating from high school. But it wasn't an easy path to get there. And I lived, I didn't know we were going through hardship. I thought we just had a normal family, but you know, mm -hmm. we lived in a double wide trailer and uh, we didn't have a lot of extras. In fact, we didn't have any extras. My mother's stock answer to every question that began, can I get, would be no. 
Yeah, <laughs> and, I know what that's like. But, but you know, I, I didn't grow up feeling particularly deprived. I know I knew that uh, mom and dad were putting money aside to save for the college education that he never had a chance to get. Mm-hmm. And so um, they came and said, you know, I had some scholarship offers, but they came and said that I could pick a school that didn't offer a scholarship because they had saved their money and they had the money to put me through school. I'm grateful wow. for that. But also I grew up in a household where I watched my dad create his own future. Uh-huh. And I didn't realize it at the time. But that desire was being passed on to me. Where do you think that desire came from for him to kind of deal with some of those challenges in his life where a lot of people could have just given up and said, hey, you know what? It's not going to work out. I'm just going to, you know, I'm just going to deal with, with this the way that I've got to versus him deciding, hey, I'm going to find a way to, uh, to create value in the world. Well, you know, there was, there was no real sympathy for what was considered a handicapped person mm-hmm. and there was no public assistance. I don't think he would have ever accepted it. Um, And, you know, even with, it it seems like a limitation. And when you see my dad now, he's still living. It looks like there is a limitation. But um, I don't know if you know, Stephen, about operating uh, heavy machinery, Mm -hmm. but uh, in a typical front-end loader, there are three things that you do with your left hand and two things that you do with your right hand, and then you have three mm-hmm. pedals that you operate with two feet. And so you're bouncing mm-hmm. back and forth between all of these, and to look like you know what you're doing, you're moving all this stuff. Well, the, mm-hmm. the two levers on his right hand, it was he just had a hook, and he would pull and bump, bump and click, uh-huh. bump and click. And uh, after a while, he mastered the technique to the point that he was no different than anyone with two normal hands. And I think that built in him the idea, I could do anything if I just put my mind to it. His entire life has been spent um, putting his mind to it. And uh, I'll never forget one day um, he was retired and I was down there with, my kids were small. We were down in uh, South Florida visiting him at his retirement home. And we went to this little diner that he liked to go to and uh, afterwards, he did. We walked out. He didn't get right in the car, and I thought, "Oh, this is something." You know, Dad's getting ready to tell me a story, <laughs> and he said, "Today's Friday the 13th. And I said, "Yeah, as a matter of fact, it is." He said, uh, "It was 60 years ago today that I lost my arm." And I said, "Wow, wow!" And then he said, "It's the best thing that ever happened to me." Right there, right there. That's it, Roger. Yeah. It, it's it's that it's that view that he had on that situation that it ended up creating within him who yeah. he was, that character that was so inspiring that he was able to go after that, um, right. right, and not give up. You know, I, I, yeah, that, that's that's really inspiring. And so, how do you think that impacted kind of where you're at and what you're doing today? Well, you know, he was a product of an earlier generation, so there's not a lot of affection in our family, and mm-hmm. um, that's not that unusual for people who are as old as I am. You know, I I just turned sixty, so mm-hmm. um, although there was not a lot of affection given back and forth in the family, we knew that that that. Um, Mom and dad loved us, but I held my own father in a place of such esteem, I wanted to be like him. And most of my adult life has been an attempt to gain his approval. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, that created the work ethic in me that drove me to college athletics, that drove me to whatever I, I found to do, do it with all my might. And mm-hmm. um, I was able to excel in the thing, some of the things that I tried to do. And I guess that's the drive that still sits inside of me. Okay, when real estate investing became my thing, I'm, I'm not going to just be mediocre. I'm going to be the very best I can be. And I may not be the brightest light in the uh, cabinet, but uh, no one's going to outwork me. Yeah. Yeah. Work ethic is definitely one of the keys to success. The more, the more great people that I talk to, it's, it's usually doesn't come, come down to, you know, having the easiest life. Actually, usually that adversity is something that really drives people forward. So Roger, tell us a little bit about what you do today and kind of what your primary focus is. Well, still today, um, flipping houses pays the bills. I have a little bit different model now than I have in the past. I uh, One of the things that I do is I've started buying inexpensive houses around the country and uh, selling them using a contract for deed um, mm-hmm. and just getting the cash flow from it. And I'm selling them as is, where is to... Um, um, local people who will buy them and fix up. I try to buy something that doesn't need a whole lot of work. That's something that I can basically do and manage with one part-time person helping me out um, mm-hmm. because, um, and, and we're doing some flips here in town too, um, but what I'm doing is I'm teaching people how to flip a house and uh, I have a local coach everywhere that I'm teaching people how to flip houses. That local uh-huh. coach works with these students to to basically hold their hand through the project. And, you know, when I started my business, um, I reached out to my dad to see if, if he was interested in loaning me some money. And he went one better. He said, I'll put up the money. You do the work. and We'll split the profit 50-50. Uh-huh. And after our first project, he told his friends how well we had done. And his friends came to me and said, hey, I've got $100,000. I've got $500,000. The next thing you know, I've got $1.2 in capital to flip as many mm-hmm. houses as I can find. Mm-hmm. So I want to give that leg up to the people that I'm training. And so um, when we're training, I, I will put up the money for them to go do their project and give me 50% of the profit. So instead of now being in the house, making the decisions right on location, over and over and over, I've got um, a couple of layers that are out there watching the ones we're actually repairing. And then I'm, you know, essentially, it's kind of like wholesaling, but it's not really these uh, inexpensive yeah. houses around the country. So I'm doing that. And I'm doing that because a few years ago, people started asking me to teach them how to do this. And then I thought, oh, okay. So I'll create a school. And by training and trade, yeah. I've been an educator and a communicator and public speaker all my career. And I thought, all right, that's cool. I can do that. Um, I have a master's degree in education. That should be a piece of cake to write a curriculum for this. And I sat down and planned it all out, wrote it up, and announced that I was in the business of teaching people. And um, we put it out there the way I knew how, which it turns out I knew nothing about marketing. And 22 people showed up to hear me. (laughs) Well, hey, I mean, that's really good because a lot of people put something out there and they won't get, they won't hear anything from anybody. So that's really cool. It sounds like you've built a good way to kind of give back and take some of those skills that you have, um, you've developed over the years and be able to give those and provide those for other people and, you know, kind of do a joint venture so that they're responsible while you're also being responsible. But kind of switching gears a little bit, tell me a little bit about what it was like to get started without, you know, having any money 
and and talk to me about like what that felt like because I know a lot of folks who are looking to get started in any career or any business venture run into that challenge where they don't really know how to get started because they don't have the funds to be able to do that. Yeah, well, people come to me and, and ask me, how did I get in this business and or why did I get in this business? I told them uh, sheer desperation and a lack of communicable job skills. I was in the ministry full-time and had been for um, a little over 20 years and uh, realized I didn't have anything to set aside for retirement. It was not because, well, maybe it's because I'm not a great planner, but I don't, I don't want to say it's 100% because I'm a bad planner. It's, you know, you, I just really wasn't thinking about it until after I turned 40. And uh, I thought, okay, well, I need to start doing something. And that led to buying a couple of rental properties, which led to the idea of flipping. But I didn't have the money to do a flip. And so uh-huh. I looked at a hard money loan. And once I understood what the terms were, that was pretty expensive. And still there's a big cash down payment. So I did, I just instinctively, I guess, did what everybody ought to do, go to family and friends. And mm-hmm. my dad was all in. My mother was a little skeptical. And my ex-wife, at, my wife at the time, was completely against it. But mm-hmm. dad was putting up his money and he believed in me. And so mm-hmm. we did the first two or three, and then it became 40 or 50. And at that point, it was on. And although I guess at, at, at some point I could have afforded hard money, I had you know so much money from old guys in Florida. I just kept on using that. Now, most of them are gone now, but... Um, th- that helped me get through my first 500 flips. So it really came down to just, just finding a way. You didn't necessarily have the means yourself, but you went and looked around at who you had already built trust with, who you'd already worked with um, in some way, shape, or form, and in your case, your family. And uh, you know those people believed in you, and so you were able to go out and, uh, and get started doing that. Right. Um, talk to me a little bit about... about what happened back in 2007, you know, because a lot of folks just like, uh, you know, like yourself have been coming up in real estate. We've been doing it for a really long time. And then you ran into this great, great opportunity that uh, pretty much wiped you out. Well, yeah. And uh, it was actually 2006 when it all started. Uh, we had, we had been doing very well in the foreclosure business. And I'd been thinking, you know, uh, the skills that we used to, calculate, you know, to analyze a foreclosure, we could probably use that for something that would have more zeros on the paycheck at the end. And so we decided to become developers. We just decided. Uh, Mm -hmm. My dad had been in the road construction business, so he knew some things about the road construction and, and some things about development. Although he had not been a developer, he knew a few things. And I knew, you know, we'd bought several hundred houses and I was feeling kind of bulletproof. And so, uh, well, let's just go for it. So um, we bought a project that turned out to be not what it was um, sold to us as, and it was kind of pitched to us by the president of a local bank that we were doing some business with, and they offered to to do the loan for us if we put half a million dollars in their bank um, to draw down the interest payments. And um, it was just a big mess. When we got into it, we realized that we didn't have a fully planned... We bought two subdivisions, not just one, but two... <laughs> You know, <laughs> go for it. Uh, 
Yeah. We realized that we didn't have fully planted subdivisions. There were there was a lot of groundwork that had to be done with the municipalities, and we had pushback and problems and issues and neighbor issues and, and things on both projects. And I still had a full-time job at the time. So we brought mm. in a, another guy to do the work for us, and we cut him in for a third of the profit. And then we found out that he had created a partnership. He learned a little bit from us about this, and he created a partnership with another local guy to do another subdivision. And he spent all of his time in that one instead of ours. But it took us a minute to realize that. The project sat there and languished. The market turned. We just lost everything. Yeah. So So that happened to so many people, especially folks who were in the development side, right? I know countless conversations that we've had. We've had some other great guests on the podcast who've talked about some of the same things. So when that happened, and you know, you'd made some decisions, you'd partner with some people, and they didn't work out. What was going through your mind at that moment when you're thinking to yourself, well, I've just lost, I've just lost everything that I've been building? What was going through your mind at that moment? Who can I sue? Who can I blame? Sure. And uh, I was talking with dad about it. He said, well, you know, my experience with the legal system has been you spend every penny of what you might ever get in a judgment and you're probably going to spend money and you never get anything out of it. So uh, you definitely shouldn't sue broke people. (laughs) And the bank had been shut down by the FDIC and the president and vice president of the bank had been sent to jail. The president got 30 years, not just for what they did to us, but uh, they had some other really bad things going on too, I understand. So who are we going to sue? Dad said to me also, he said, you know, I've lost half a million dollars before and I'm not interested in diving in there and creating another business. I'm too old for it, but you're young yet. You can go make it back. Yeah. He was right. So you, you immediately went, you immediately went to this place of blame and you wanted to say, Hey, who can I hold responsible for these actions? Did you realize that that actually you were the only one who could really be held responsible because you guys had made those decisions? Sure. Yes, of course. And that's really what my dad's uh, indirect way of, of counseling me mm-hmm. about this was. Really, we didn't do the bad things. We didn't lie to ourselves. We were lied to. Sure. But we made the decision, and we did have a few yellow flags that we ignored. So, yeah, mm-hmm. it, it, what it came down to is really it was our responsibility. And then, of course, it became my responsibility to get my money back and my dad's money back, not from these sources, mm-hmm. but from just going out and, and doing the business and earning it back again. Yeah, we, you know, so often, especially when we're getting started in something new, we really want it. Like, we really want that thing to happen. We, we want to be a developer. We want to be an investor. We want to be a speaker. We want to be any of these things that people are dreaming about being. And we kind of go after it. We ignore those signs, right? We ignore the signs of, yeah. well, well, maybe there's some reasons here that, that it might not work out. And I feel like it's natural to do that because otherwise, uh, we'll be listening to all the people who are naysayers who don't believe that it's possible. And it's tough because you don't want that to stop you from going out and trying it again, right? Yeah, So, but here's a good question. And it's a question that I still use now. It's, it's kind of a, two ways of asking the same question. Number one is you just ask yourself, but what if it doesn't? Uh-huh. Or another way of saying that is, how can this deal come up and bite me in the fanny? Mm. Uh, and when you answer that question, you have engaged in a form of risk mitigation. So that's my big takeaway from the 2007 debacle. 
what if it isn't? What if what if these danger signs are true? And you know, even as I work with students now, I see students trying to make deals fit. You know, well, this deal will work if we just don't spend you know a, a lot on the rehab, but you got to spend yeah. this money on the rehab, so yeah. it doesn't work. But they're still hanging on trying to make the deal work. You know. Yeah. And it's good to have that drive to try to find a creative way. But when you're trying to put a a round peg into a square hole and things don't end up working out, the market's not going in your direction. Right. That's when, that's when failure can really hit and that can be really tough to handle. Switching gears a little bit. Talk to me about what are some of your biggest challenges in life today? Um, the real challenges I, I'm facing right now is I'm spending, uh, I'm finding that I'm spending more and more time thinking about legacy and uh, how much time do I really have left and the uh, thing, the parts of the legacy that are so far undone and, you know, what am I actually going to get accomplished in some of those big, you know, change the world kind of things. So when you realize that you're not quite where you want to be as far as that legacy piece, being able to leave something behind, how do you look at that? And when you're looking at it, how do you decide, okay, well, this is these are the things that I'm going to do next? Not talking about exactly what you're going to do, but more talking about the process that you go through and deciding, yeah. okay, well, what steps am I going to take? Well, I'm guided by a couple of thoughts. Um, one of them is um, George Clooney made a, a movie that was set in Hawaii several years ago. It wasn't a big movie. I, I don't know. I was traveling somewhere at the time and had nothing to do, and I went into the movie theater and just picked one. I couldn't tell you the name of the movie. I guess I could look it up. But in the movie, he said one thing that stayed with me and is kind of a a thought that I use. I want to leave my kids enough money to do something, but not enough to do nothing. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was a very good line. And uh, I've kept that. That's that's a part of uh, my guiding thing. So uh, my wife and I are working on a plan to leave the kids the ability to do something. Um, not all of them have an entrepreneurial spirit, and that's okay, but something, but not enough to do nothing because we want them to enjoy the, the life lessons that comes from a little hardness and having to endure some things. Yeah, I feel like a lot of I feel like a lot of parents who are successful and really driven it's hard to instill those those values that it took that it took you learning directly yeah. into the kids. That Stephen that is you're right. That is so hard because we love our children and we don't want to see them suffer. We don't want to see them have to go through hardship. We don't want to see them in pain. That's the natural mm-hmm. loving part of us, but the fact is most of what I have done has come through pain and through hardness and through difficulty. Mm-hmm. And if, you know, the old saying, if life is a, a, a mountain and we want to get to the peak, well, it's the bumps that you climb on. If it's smooth, mm-hmm. it's going to be harder to get to the top. And so I, I don't try mm-hmm. to um, create ways for my children to smooth out the bumps. You know, my uh, son did get a basketball scholarship and, you know, we made the deal with the kids. If you get a scholarship, um, you get a car because a car is cheaper than paying for college. If you get a scholarship and you take it. So, um, but then um, he wrecked the pickup um, that I got him and uh, it was his fault. He wasn't being foolish. He just lost control on a rainy road, but still he wrecked the truck. And so his next car was on him. And man, that was hard. Yeah. That was hard for me yeah, to well, say to well, him. Well, it's hard because you know you probably have the means to provide it, but you 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 need them 
to be able to deal with that pain themselves and maybe find some of yeah. that motivation, some of that drive that that you had that you learned, you know, growing up. And I'm sure that they will. I'm sure you've set them up for success and uh, that they're going to yeah. follow in your footsteps there. So on that note, some days I don't know. Yeah, right. Uh, so on that note of success, how would you define success, and uh, what is success for you? That's a very good question. Um, and that goes to the other thing that I was going to share with you a moment ago. Um, the thought is, when it comes to legacy, I may not do everything that I originally set out to do, but I want to be able to look back and say, honestly, I did all I could. Mm-hmm. Not all of us are equally gifted. Not all of us are equally able. Um, every single person that you meet is looking at someone else and seeing skills or abilities or or attributes that they wish they had, everyone is. Those -hmm. things don't matter. What really matters is um, what we do with what we've been given. And can I honestly say, I've done all I can with all I was given. Yeah. No one can ask anything more. Um, Whether you believe in God or not, you know, it doesn't matter. No one, no one can ask of you to give more than you're capable of giving. But uh, I believe that I will account to God one day for what I did with my life. And uh, I can certainly point the finger at a lot of mistakes and some failures and some willful, just stupidity on my part. Absolutely. But, But in the end, I want the story to be, he really did do all he could with what he had. And that's what I want for my children. And uh, whatever legacy I'm able to leave them, I want that message to be a part of it. And uh, that to be kind of uh, maybe the inscription, well, I'm not going to have a tombstone, but maybe they can etch it into my you know, ashes urn. So I ask myself that same question sometimes. You know, If, if now was the end of it, would I be happy with, with life? And uh, if I was to ask you the same question, you know, based on that definition of success, do you feel like you've uh, you've made it? If today was the last day, well, yes, I haven't I haven't made it in the sense of everything that I want to accomplish, but um, uh-huh. I've done the best I know how to do with what I know to do, and so yes, um, you know, um, uh, have you ever heard of Saint Francis of Assisi? Mm-hmm. He was hoeing his garden one day, and one of the monks came up to him and said, "You know, Jesus could return." Tonight, if you knew that he was, what would you do with the rest of the day? And St. Francis leaned back for a minute and he said, my task for today is to hoe the garden. And so that's what I would do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you feel like you're doing that, which I, which I can really appreciate. From a habits perspective, talk to me a little bit about some of your keystone habits, the things that you do on a daily or weekly basis that uh, have kind of led to some of your success. Well, I do find a way to try to, to stay fit. When my legs aren't working, I'll work arms and chest, try to get some movement. And I have learned that I can ride a recumbent bike. And mm-hmm. so um, I try to hit the gym four times a week, at least four. And uh, for my age, that's okay. And that's I, I at least try to make myself sweat. It's, it's funny. Um, you, don't, you don't know this, Stephen, but one of these days you will. Um, when you're this <laughs> age, it's tough to get yourself sweating in a workout situation, but all you need to do is put me out in the Atlanta weather and sweating's no problem. Yeah, right. So I, I go to the gym. I, I'm not as dedicated as my wife. Man, she is amazing. She's down there between 4.30 and 5 every single day, six days a week. 
I get down there around 5.30, four days a week. And um, we have a gym in the building where we live, so it's it's easy just to take the elevator and we don't have to ride together because there's no riding. But um, then when I come back, I do some things to keep my mind alert. Uh, I solve a crossword puzzle every day. And I have... Um, wow. Uh, other little math and word games that I th- I think it's like mental exercise, you know? Okay, got down there and pumped yeah. some iron, and now I'm going to exercise my brain, and now I'm going to read. I spend some time um, each morning uh, in doing a considerable amount of reading. I have some habits about uh, reading the Bible, and then I also uh, spend some time reading a book. I try to read two to four books every week, unless I'm in the middle of wow. another learning thing. Um, uh-huh. You know, if I'm taking a course or something like that, but I'll try to read two to four books a week. And, you know, I am not reading every single word and dwelling on the thoughts, but some of the paragraphs, the, the key phrases, um, I'll read more than once and highlight and illustrate. And I will take time in my own mind at the end of a book to mentally outline it, uh, commit some of those things to memory. What am I really going to take away and how am I going to use this in my business? All of that happens before 7.30 in the morning. I like that. You're focused on first, let me get my body in the right place so that I can feel some energy inside. And then I want to work on my mind, both strengthening it with some exercises and putting some new information in it. So I can really, yeah. uh, I, uh, I can get behind that. Yeah, body, body, mind, and spirit. That's, that's everything in the morning. That's key. That's key. So we've made it to the growth rapid fire round where the questions are quick, but the answers don't need to be. Okay. So tell me, what's a book that's impacted your life the most or one that you're excited about right now? Man, I read so many books, but I can tell you without even thinking too much about it, Traction by Gino Wickman is the mm. best business book I've read in the last five years. That is a crowd pleaser, for sure, for getting those business yeah. processes Very and good. systems into place. So from an inspiration standpoint, you talked to us a little bit about your father, um, but who are some of your mentors, the people that you learned from or looked up to, and how did they influence your career? When I was a very young man, I lived in a small town in North Georgia, and there was a gentleman in town named Jack Cornelius, who he passed away in the 80s. But he took me under his wing, and he taught me so much about life and business. And so, um, you know, he's gone now, but um, definitely one. And, uh, you know, I tend to find someone that's got a little bit more experience and a little bit more on the ball. Uh, everywhere I go. Right now, here in Atlanta, one of my dear friends is a gentleman named Gordon Katz, who may actually hear this, um, but uh, Gordon has been investing in real estate since 73, and he helped start the Georgia RIA, the Atlanta RIA, the National RIA, and he knows people all over the country. And uh, in fact, in a little while, we are going together to uh, a local RIA group that he still leads. He's 76 years old now. He still leads three RIA groups in the metro Atlanta area. And so I'll spend the evening with him and I pick his brain and he's been a mentor and and uh, he teaches me things. So um, there's a couple. That's great. Get out there and meet some new people, folks. There's a lot, of, a lot of people that you can learn from here. And so finally, from a purpose perspective, what drives you to live your best life every day? I think we've probably pretty much touched on that. Do you know the, um, the corporate motto of Chick-fil-A? No, tell me. It's inscribed on a big bronze thing outside their headquarters. It's uh, to glorify God and to bring value to our customers every day. Um, and I, I may have a word or two wrong in there, but I like that. Um, and the way I kind of interpret that is 
all-out effort, whether it's work or play, all-out effort, and choose to enjoy. Really is a choice. I see a lot of unhappy people, but I also know that if you dwell on things that make you unhappy, and if you focus on unhappy feelings, you're going to be unhappy. But if uh, I choose to laugh at stupid jokes, why? Well, the majority of jokes are stupid. If you choose to laugh at even the stupid jokes, you get to laugh more. So (laughs) I'll laugh at stupid, corny, punny jokes. I don't care. And I laugh more and I have a good time. It sounds like a good way to live, live a great life, Roger. So thanks so much for being on the show. Where can people find out more about you or get in touch? That's pretty easy, rogerblankenship.com. And uh, you can go to any internet outlet and hear our show, Flipping America. We also have a free app in the App Store, completely free, no in-app purchase or upsell. Flipping America is the name of the show. And uh, between those two sources, you'll find everything you need to know about me. That's great. Well, we'll link to all that in the show notes. So thank you so much for spending some time with us sharing that investor mindset. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you for listening to the Investor Mindset Podcast. If you like what you heard, make sure to rate, review, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Head over to theinvestormindset.com to join the Insider Club, where we share tools and strategies from the top investors and entrepreneurs on how to take it to the next level.